We're going to, um, I'm working through issues and uh, teaching through a variety of different issues that shouldn't be controversial, um, but as um, churches drift farther and farther away from biblical teaching and especially biblical standards, uh, we see these things become a controversy. And so I'm going to begin tonight a series, uh, probably I'm guessing about four lessons, maybe five on church music. And uh, I want to teach through uh, some music standards and all the things that we're doing during the summer um, this year. Uh, And I know we're starting summer early, uh, but uh, to get through it in the summer, the goal is to deal with variety of standards um, that we teach and that we believe here at um, Berean. And uh, one of the things, you know, I really like to um, make sure people understand what they will be taught from the pulpit here at Berean. I know that uh, we bring people in. They don't have uh, all, all those standards in place. It's important for us to teach those to people so that they can learn and develop some right biblical standards on things, but also um, to recognize that people grow at different rates and we're not, uh, our expectation is that you would listen and that you would learn and that you would be committed to the truth. That would be the expectation from our church. I had an interesting thing of the last couple of weeks, a family uh, from the area that reached out to me through email and asked me, started asking me a variety of questions um, related to versions and doctrine and that sort of thing. And I felt like they were trying to be really thorough in evaluating what kind of church we were. It was clear from his questions, uh, the dad's questions, that they were not coming from a um, the kind of uh, conservative fundamental background uh, that we have here at our church. Uh, so as I was explaining and trying to make sure he understood what we are and what we believe and what we preach and teach and stand for here at the church, uh, it seemed like he was very interested in our church for a time. And uh, in fact, his last email to me, he said, we're going to come and visit your church. And uh, then I said, I sent him a, a uh, an email back in response to that and said, before you come, uh, you should watch this. And I sent him the YouTube video from last week uh, that you all watched on uh, dress standards. And um, he has not replied to me since, <laughs> not said anything, um, yay or nay. Now, this is a common feature in this day and age when people have been conversing with you. And, and this is how I look at it. Uh, if someone comes and, and visits our church, I'm going to make an investment in those people. There's going to be an emotional investment. There's going to be a spiritual investment. You also are going to make an investment in those people, welcoming them into the church and so on. I don't want to have people come here under a pretense, and I don't want to make an investment in, in people who later on are going to ditch us because they come to that thing, whatever it is. And I can't always predict what that thing is going to be, um, but I certainly know that with many people, there is that one issue that they're not going to be okay with. It would be better, in my opinion, it's better just to get that out uh, up front. Uh, It does them a favor, does us a favor, and so on. But also, it's disappointing the number of people who, and I would say, with considering the number of emails that we exchanged and the length of those emails and the carefulness that I had in answering, you know, it's just a matter of respect to reply to that and say, hey, listen, brother, I appreciate you being candid. I don't think that this is going to work for us or something. But this has become that we have more avenues for communication than ever before. And we are worse at communicating than we have ever been. 
And it's amazing to me the people who just won't respond at all. I don't I don't need a whole lot, but just, you know, something. Uh, I got it. Thank you. We're not going to come. Whatever. That's fine. But nonetheless, we are and we have to in this day and age, especially we have to draw draw our lines on scriptural grounds. We have to believe what the Bible says and preach that and teach that. Now I'll tell you that my work and my ministry would be a thousand times easier if I just let live and let live and didn't preach and teach things that relate to anyone's actual life. <laughs> what a glory <boring> church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. But it, it, we probably would have a few more people um, here if we did. It would be, look, I, you know, there are a thousand questions that I would just rather not answer. I would rather not discuss. I would rather just stick to um, the, the things that everyone agrees on. And this is what I'm told pretty regularly, that that's all we should talk about. All we should we should not discuss cultural issues at all. Of course, over the last three or four years, we've discovered that it doesn't work for a faithful church not to discuss cultural issues. Now, with the rise of social justice and wokeness and etc., it does not work for pastors to avoid dealing with the culture. And so we have almost a rebirth of fundamentalism without some of the some of what we're going to talk about here tonight. But we're going to talk about music tonight. Colossians chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Are you there? Did I announce that text already? Uh, Okay, no. All right, then I'll give you two seconds to find it. One. Two. All right, Colossians three, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Let's pray and we'll talk about church music. We thank you, Lord, that we can be together in your house. Thank you for giving us a place where we can worship and serve you. And I thank you for your word where we can know you and know what you want from us. And Lord, may we always give you what you want. And may this be our offering of praise and worship to you. Please help me as I open the word to your people. I pray that you would guide and teach We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I want to I want to put to rest tonight the idea that music is neutral. This is a common prevalent idea in this day and age. And let me add that those who argue that music is neutral are always arguing it because they want a particular kind of music which apparently is not neutral. But that's the, that's the, it's like the big freight car that's bringing this package, uh, special delivery package here. So I want you to notice a couple things in Colossians 3 and verse 16. First of all, um, the music is connected to and part of letting the word of God dwelling, dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, uh, the the faithful, appropriate application of knowledge, which is wisdom, which we gather from the word of God and put it into practice in our lives. And the result will be. And in fact, the method that is mentioned here in this passage is by means of teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the Bible is making a a clear and direct connection between letting the Word of God dwell in you richly and the kind of teaching 
that takes place through music. And it's important to note that the Bible speaks of music, music here, as a form of teaching. Now, anyone who has taught children knows that the easiest, one of the easiest ways to teach children is through music. You teach them a song and they will always know it. They'll always be able to remember it. Uh, Our English grammar in our school uses a lot of songs and the kids learn those songs. And once they learn them, they can never get them out of their head. I know this because I didn't learn these songs when I was a kid. I never learned these songs. I heard them twice and I it it just uh, you started off and there it goes. And the kids know what I'm talking about right now. And I'm not going to annoy you all by singing it. All right. Uh, But it's like when you go to Disneyland for the first time and you hear it's a small world after all. And all I have to do is say that to you and the rest of the night it will be running through your head. It's running through your head right now because God made us in such a way that music teaches us. That alone should tell you that music is not a a neutral instrument. It teaches. Anything that teaches, folks, is not neutral. If it teaches, it's not neutral. I don't know how to say that in a clearer way. To make that clearer for you. Neutral things are neutral. They don't they don't go in any direction. They don't steer. For sure they don't steer. Steering would not be neutral, right? Neutral would be like take your hands off the off the wheel, right? And just let the car drift or the boat drift wherever the wind and the waves might take it. But even that really is not neutral. Not not really because it's still bobbing around there directed by the waves, moved by the waves, and the waves are going to hit it and the wind is going to hit it and impact it in a certain way and you would expect it to. I mean, really, all of us, when we are in the boat, prefer to have the boat in the water, not the water in the boat, right? Because boats were made to be in the water, they were not made to have the water in them. The boats with the most water in them are at the bottom, right? Not doing what boats are intended to do. Boats were not made, for instance, to conceal hid treasures from Spanish galleons and pirates long ago. They were not made for that. That's not the primary purpose, right? And if it has a purpose and an intention, It is not neutral. Hopefully I'm making that really clear and helpful to you to understand this. The argument for neutrality when it comes to music is that it doesn't really. It's here's how I've heard it said before. It's just chords on a scale. A scale is not teaching you anything. It's not telling you anything. It's just it's just chords. It's just different sounds mixed together. You know, I mean, someday when I'm really old, they'll throw all my food in a blender and blend it up and feed it to me with a straw. You know, it'll be great in that day. That won't be neutral either, by the way. I mean, really, when I chew it and swallow it, that's like putting it in a blender, right? Only I don't have to taste it in the blender. I don't want to taste it in the blender. I want my steak served to me, medium rare, in a quivering slab on the plate, right? I want to cut it myself with my own fork and my own knife and put it in. But that's not neutral. That's not neutral. Steak demands to be eaten a certain way. No, I mean, you can tell me how you like your steaks all cut and, you know, diced in little squares by your wife. You know, that's fine if that's how you want to do it. But that's not what a steak wants. A steak does not want to be eaten that way. Why spoil a great steak 
I've thrown it in a blender. You don't want to do this. It ruins it. You want it pink in the middle too. Really pink. Oozing. That's the way you want it. Alright, this is this is good. Am I not preaching the truth right here? It's gospel. <clears throat> but let me let me back up and point you again. First of all, that there is a certain task for music, and that is teaching and admonishing one another in or by means of the psalms that we sing and the hymns that we sing and the spiritual songs that we sing. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing. So, so then that means that there's a particular direction of our music as well. It is aimed at the Lord, not at the audience. It is not for the entertainment of the audience. It is not for the delight of the audience. Now that, of course, does not mean that we should attempt to disgust the audience by means of our music um, or drive them crazy with our music. Uh, there, There is a place for skill and beauty and this is a right thing and we should want to offer God our very best and we should want to improve ourselves so that we can offer Him even better than what we have. But nonetheless, as we teach and admonish through our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we also are offering by means of those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are offering praise to God. That's not neutral either. And there is a right way and a wrong way to offer praise to God. If you can't think of a wrong way, I probably could point it out to you. You know, I think... um, some I've seen some um, churches. There's one church in Florida um, that had uh, for their Sunday morning service. They had a troop of stormtroopers that did um, a dance up on the platform in praise to God. I mean, stormtroopers like from Star Wars. They're dressed like that, and uh, they're on the platform and they're um, doing this special dance. To praise the Lord. Now, if you just watch it and turn off the music, you're not thinking, yes, that's worship. Well, I mean, you might think it's worship, but not worship of the triune God of heaven. Um, you're worshiping something. And if you turn the volume up, um, boy, it's very difficult to discern that those words are bringing any kind of glory to God, but whatever the words might be, the music itself betrays the message in the words and uh, the distraction of it and the, the fleshly elements of it certainly are not something that are worthy of the thrice holy God of heaven. And we are taught to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so What the Bible is telling us right here alone should be enough, should be adequate to tell us that music is not neutral. But then the next verse clarifies it even more, gives makes it makes the point even stronger. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Understand that. That means that the worship, the music that we play in our church is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for His sake, again, as an offering to Him. Whatever we do, it is to be done for His praise and for His glory. So finally, choreographed Stormtroopers dancing on the stage. It's very hard to make the case that that's for God, except that, of course, the ones doing it say, oh, it's all for the Lord. And on their say so. But there are certain things that we see people do and their actions betray their words. And that would be the case here. But let me back up and come to what I wanted, what I have in my notes 
now. This is why we're going to take four or five weeks because I'm not going to, you know. Anyway, uh, let's just talk for a few minutes about neutrality and about the various things that we have in our world that we would naturally think are just neutral things. Here, I'll give you an example. A mechanical clock. Right? Let's talk about the mechanical clock. Now, mechanical clocks, I mean, do we even have those anymore? We have one out there, but they're wrong all the time. We have our watches now, I mean our phones. We have our phones on our watches now, and we can tell time by that, and those times are always right on, exact. And even to the point where people only buy watches now frequently buy watches today for uh, decoration not for um, actual timekeeping because we have our phones for the timekeeping and we're more likely to consult our phones but that's another issue let's just take the clock the old-fashioned kind with the dial you know and the 12 numbers uh, on them Uh, let's take that kind of clock right there uh, which traces back This is going to shock you. There was a day when there were no clocks. Can you believe that? There was once upon a time in the dark ages, there were no clocks. Can you imagine such a time with no clocks? The clock, the mechanical clock was invented in the 12th and 13th centuries by Benedictine monks. Now, what this means, first of all, is that I can't remember a time when there were no clocks. But you're not going to get that joke. So I'll just move on. How did people know what time to start if they had no clocks? Worse yet, how did the pastor know what time to finish when there were no clocks? See, I'm, I'm a man born for the wrong time. I should have been like the 11th century um, prior to the invention of the clock. Most people would look at a clock as a neutral thing. It's not good. It's not evil. Right? We hardly notice the way we are shaped by the clock, partly because we're native to it. You don't notice how things are shaping you unless it was invented in your lifetime. All right, so um, the adults here, even the young adults, probably remember when they got a phone. Probably remember, maybe you remember back in the days when phones hung on walls and had curly cords that would get tangled and twisted. Huh? How many of you, your, your home has never had a phone like that? How many of you? Raise your hand. Your home. Never had a phone like that. Yeah, the base. Yeah, the portable. Yes. Yeah, you remember that. But how many of you, your home, never had the phone with the curly cord? Huh? Two. In this whole auditorium, two. Wow. How many of you had a party line phone? Yeah? Yeah? Nick doesn't know what I'm talking about. Oh, you, you remember the party line? Yeah. 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 It's, um, it feels like how, how much of life has bridged, right? And how we just adapt these conveniences and generations come along who knew not the phone, right? Don't remember it. Never saw it. Or you see it. We have one right now in our house that uh, was my wife's parents. Um, and it's sitting. It's not plugged into anything. It's just sitting on a desk. Um, and uh, from, you know, years ago. There. But the clock, though, none of us have lived long enough to remember when the clock was invented. And so we don't even recognize the way we are shaped by the clock. We don't notice. 
When you glance at your watch, though, you're not just satisfying some odd curiosity. Looking at your watch is not like scratching an itch, right? You look at your watch for a certain reason. You want to see what time it is. Because you know that there are schedules. There are places to be. In the middle of a sermon, if you're looking at your watch, it's because you're thinking, how much longer is he going to go? Right? How much longer do I have to sit here? You glance at your watch to know what time it is, and that tells you that your watch is not neutral. It's designed for a purpose. It fulfills a task. It tells you something. And to an extent, it orders you as well. Because you're looking at your watch and saying, oh, I've got time. You're looking at your watch. No, I I got like five minutes. You're looking at your watch. Oh, man, I'm going to be late. I got to go. Right? That's not neutral. Your watch is telling you. Your watch is, in fact, ordering you. In some ways, clocks are good. They help us to know when to start, when to finish, or if we're late. Uh, More importantly... Um, well, well, let's just say it this way. Clocks make us into timekeepers. So they make us, they shape us into and actually into several things. They make us into timekeepers. Uh, this is, in fact, why the Benedictine monks invented the mechanical clock. They wanted to provide regularity to the routines of the monastery. They wanted to mark the canonical hours the seven periods of devotion throughout the day. And to that end, the clock served for them a valuable purpose. Now, what's interesting is it was invented so that they could be to their devotions the right times. Okay? But then business leaders recognized very quickly that the clock could be an aid to them in productivity So they could tell their employees, this is what time I want you to be at work. And this is how long I want you to work. And so to that end, the, the, the clock made us more efficient, more proficient. Our clocks also serve as a constant reminder to us that time is passing. They make us to think about things like saving time again a worthwhile thing so the clock makes us time keepers and the clock makes us time savers in the centuries before the mechanical clock was invented um, I'm really doubtful like in the 11th century or the 10th century I'm doubtful that people had day planners probably didn't probably um, were not Uh, writing out schedules for themselves, maybe to-do lists, but not schedules. In the centuries before the mechanical clock was invented, uh, it's hard for us really to imagine how people knew what time to be at church and so on. Schedules are a byproduct of the mechanical clock. Not long after the monastery has established their routines, as I mentioned, the business owners found a use for the clock. Um, and so then, so you had timekeepers, time savers, and then people are given a schedule. You're to be at work at this time, you're to leave at this time, and people became time servers. And now in our day, uh, people stand by the time clock for about 15 minutes before their shift is over, waiting for the shift to be over uh, so that they can punch out. And so people have become also time wasters. And all of this demonstrates that really nothing in our world is neutral. Nothing. There's not a neutral square inch on the face of this earth. Every device, every tool, every activity, every article of clothing, every work of art, all of them have their own unique bias a way that they insist on being used, and uh, a way that they 
shape us and direct us in our lives. I'll give you just a few other examples. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, Shirley, our old camp caretaker, uh, Shirley told me one time she insisted that her grandkids call her from a landline. Now, good luck with that these days. But when they were out with their friends, she made them call from a landline. Do you know why? She told me why. She said, because when you have a cell phone, you could be anywhere. You don't have to tell the truth about where you are. I wanted to make sure that they were where they were supposed to be, she said. <clears throat> Again, that demonstrates the particular bias that our devices have. They demand to be used a particular way. They also allow us to use them other ways. They extend our powers while at the same time they also are... Um, restricting us more. They take us prisoner. Your phone is making demands of you. Like if you look at your watch throughout the day and compare that to the number of times you look at your phone, which one would win? Because the phone is constantly calling for your attention. Beeping, buzzing, vibrating, notifying you of this and of that and of all kinds of things. And if your phone doesn't do that, you don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, what else are we supposed to do when we're standing in the line at the post office? Except look at our phone. Because we don't have anything else to do. And that's what the phone invites us to do, but it also has now shaped us to do that almost put us under orders, obligations. Even so with music. Among other things, music is a tool. It is a tool for worshiping God. Let me explain this to you. It's a tool that God has recommended. It has a particular bias to it. To it. If I started singing this lecture to you, imagine if I, for a Sunday morning, um, sang the sermon to you. That would be, I know what you're going to say. That would be wonderful. That's what you're going to say. It would be glorious, no doubt, especially this um, baritone voice here, up here singing to you. Um, and you would just be with me the whole time, would you not? No, 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 no. You're thinking that would be very awkward, Pastor. And you're right, it would. Because music wasn't made for that. Oh, I mean, in the day, the bards would travel with their lyre and they would tell the news and the story. They would sing it. Uh, many of the great stories, Beowulf, as an example, Homer most likely was a traveling bard, told these stories everywhere he went, became famous for it, and kind of compacted the story and, and uh, made it consistent. The Iliad and the Odyssey. But in our day, we don't use music that way. And so it would be strange to us. But we don't think that it's strange to sing when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Or to sing some of the songs who is on the Lord's side as we sang tonight. That doesn't seem strange to us. Now, some of this is because we're accustomed to it. It's culturally acceptable, even normal, but also because we have in our mind a certain way that music is to be used, a certain use for music. And this illustrates the fact that everything, everything in our world is designed a certain way to be used a certain way. Some music is more appropriate for a backyard barbecue some for a concert in the park, some for the bedroom, and some for church. Some melodies are inappropriate for church, and some are inappropriate anywhere. This means that some tunes are appropriate for worship and some are not. The act of worship involves giving honor and reverence to God as God. Worship is a display 
of adoration, an act of reverence, of paying so supreme respect and honor to God. My favorite definition of worship is giving God what he wants, what he's asked for. Now, contemporary worship has trained believers to think that the worship part of the service is contained in the music service, that when we are singing, that's when we're worshiping, and then we have the preaching as a separate thing. But that's not the case. Worship involves really every part of the service from the offerings to the greetings and the conversations to the praying, singing, preaching, Preaching, absolutely. In fact, it's the supreme act of worship. To preach is to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And when you listen to the preaching of God's word, you're listening to what God says, his instructions for you. But again, we're focused here on music. So the music part of our worship has a particular bias, a particular way of worshiping that is distinct from other ways we worship. Giving our offering is another distinct way that we worship, and there is a way that we do that. And there's a way that we sing as well. It is our purpose here to explore the ways that we should use music in worship and giving God what he wants. But before we go into the details We need to mention, I need to pause and mention the place of psalm singing as part of worship. In selecting our music for worship, God has not left us to wonder what he wants, you know, or what kind of music or what the message of the music ought to be or what the music should do or should not do. God has given us an entire book to teach us what to sing and how to sing and what the focus should be. And we have these, not one or two, but 150, some of them so long that we could spend an hour and a half and not finish singing them. And God has given these to us so that we know what he wants when we sing. Church music should be patterned after the Psalms. It's not difficult to demonstrate that we should sing psalms. I don't know how to obey what we read in Colossians 3.16 if we're not singing psalms. We do hymns and spiritual songs, but we skip the psalms. Someone, I think, was teasing me, uh, surely jesting one time and said to me, we'll start singing the psalms when we start singing the minor prophets. And I said, ha ha, that's funny. Just like God said, right? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and minor prophets and spiritual songs, right? That's what God said, isn't it? Because he didn't. He said psalms. And the the only psalms I know of are the ones in the Bible. I know that we could also write a poem and call it a psalm. But we have a book of psalms that God gave us inspired by him. This is what we should be singing. Of course, the Bible also um, teaches us in other places, Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, which, by the way, again, notice that it is directed to the Lord. It is sung to him. And that ought to be by the way, the direction of our hymn singing as well. Yes, there is a place for admonishing and teaching as Colossians 3 describes it, but it is all the direction of it is always to be to the Lord. Now, for many years, churches sang psalms exclusively. Isaac Watts really introduced the change to that. Um, it was somewhat of a controversial change. People embraced it fairly quickly um, with that, but there was still some controversy. In fact, some, uh, well, this is what happened. This is interesting. Um, a, a Puritan by the name of William Romaine wrote a, uh, a pamphlet. Back then, you know, a tract was not like a trifold um, piece of paper. It was um, quite long. A pamphlet 
on the place of psalm singing in which he argued that Isaac Watts never intended for his hymns to replace psalm singing, but that is exactly what happened. People got into the hymns so enthusiastically that psalm singing was entirely eliminated from churches. And really, when I first heard about psalm singing, I thought I was very intrigued. I thought it was a wonderful idea, but how in the world do you do it? Where do you start? How does this get restored? I was shocked to discover that there were not just one or two, but quite a few different um, psalters that were available. And so we grabbed a few and experimented with them to see which ones we liked. Many of you remember the early days of psalm singing in our church. We had a handout and we would sing from that and and learn that. And we just slowly grew into it. Um, But really, it's sad. You know, here I am as a pastor just now hearing that modern day Christians still have psalm singing available to them. Things are forgotten very easily when we discard practices that we consider to be archaic or old fashioned. I'm not here tonight going to argue for psalm singing. Really, I'm I'm going to finish here very quickly. I just want to show you that the Psalms do teach us about music and teach us what our music, what what should characterize our music. And particularly the Psalms teach us what is acceptable for church music. And so let me say this, that many in many cases, our hymns and our psalm singing is actually not our our psalm singing, our hymns and our music in our churches is much more narrow than what the Bible would teach us to sing. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. First of all, the Psalms teach us that it is absolutely acceptable to use um, instruments in worship. Psalm 150 and verse 3, Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. All those are instruments. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him with the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. So you have uh, there a variety of different kinds of instruments that are named, all of which are appropriate for worship. Uh, It is both appropriate and scriptural for those instruments to be loud as well. All right. It is not necessary that the instruments be subdued and quiet. Psalm 150 verse five, praise him upon, upon the loud symbols, praise him upon the high sounding symbols. It is appropriate also for us to sing loud. Psalm 98 and verse four, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth, make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. So it is not necessary uh, for us to sing in a whisper. All right. Um, If you've ever been to an LDS funeral. (laughs) I was at one at the D event center and um, and they sang. And every time they sang, it was so pathetic. Like people sang like this. They hardly moved their mouth. Like you would think that it was ventriloquist. It was like a quiet contest. See who could sing the quietest with some sound still coming out. All right. And it's interesting when LDS visit our church, they always say, you all sing out. It's wonderful. I love it. I mean, you could try it. It would help to have something to sing about. But um, it's good and right that we should practice for special music. Psalm 33 and verse 3, sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. I don't know of any skillful music that's ever been produced by people who don't practice. The Psalms also teach us what we should sing about. Notice the subject matter of some of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 18, verses 6 through 8. You can write these down. I'm not going to read them for the sake of time. But Psalm 18, verses 6 through 8 uh, would teach us to sing about the wrath of God. 
How many hymns do you know that sing about the wrath of God? That's not a popular subject matter. Not likely to be the next favorite choral arrangement. A song about the wrath of God. I can't think of offhand of one. Verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 18 um, teach us to sing about the judgment of God. That's another um, often frequently missed topic of singing. Uh, Verses 29 to 34 uh, of Psalm 18 teach me to sing about his power and might at work through me. He teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. I love that. We should sing about that. He teaches us in Psalm 18, verses 39 to 42, to sing about the way God has girded me with strength for the battle. And one of my favorite psalms to mention, the 109th Psalm teaches us to rejoice in the destruction of our enemies. We don't have a lot of hymns along those lines. The fact that we're careful to avoid contemporary tunes or songs does not mean that our music is everything that it ought to be. I would characterize the majority of church music in our day in good conservative churches that would never think of anything contemporary as soft, even effeminate. Churches that take a strong stand against contemporary worship and sing effeminate songs. There's no excuse for it. But it comes from our modern day rejection of psalm singing. And as a result, the the idea of singing, remember I preached Sunday night that the wrath of God is an attribute of God an attribute we never praise in our hymns. And you know why? People don't have an appetite for that. We are troubled by the wrath of God. We may be a little embarrassed about the wrath of God. But we don't want to sing about the wrath of God. We're not even certain, and I can... I can almost guarantee some of you are questioning whether it would be appropriate to sing about the wrath of God as a church. We've lost an entire segment of subject matter. Giant chunks of subject matter for singing praise to God. We've lost. Modern hymns and songs, even conservative ones, Focus a lot of attention on our feelings, on our emotions. If we would build our music around the Psalms, we would be singing about crushing our enemies, and we would love that. The ladies would love singing about crushing their enemies, and so would the men. I've pointed out to you before, and I know that I know that Ron Hamilton just died, and I I definitely honor him. He made a huge contribution to Christianity. All right, but I also would point out to you that the 109th Psalm, I can't imagine a single patch tune that you could sing the 109th Psalm to. It wouldn't work. You know, where the psalmist is saying, May their children die desolate. This is not something Christians want to sing about. We are embarrassed about the 109th Psalm. We're not sure what to do about it. Forgetting that we have an adversary, the devil who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And how would a Christian not rejoice to see the day he's destroyed and to remember that he will be destroyed? Why can we not sing about the death of the dragon? But this is a problem. 
Our churches become effeminate because our songs are effeminate. Love Comes Softly is not a book for men. Okay, I say that knowing that probably there's a man or two that's read it. But the soft melodies and feely messages that are churned out by places like Majesty Music have produced and even inspired a very pernicious kind of effeminate Christian. And if you don't believe me, just look at the world around us today. How do we get where we are now? Where it's commonplace for teenage boys to announce that they're a girl. That's not strange and unusual. What's happening now is teenage boys are announcing that they're a cat and asking for a litter box. And we all just stand by if that's the way he feels about it. But I trace it to the teaching and admonishing that we were to be doing with our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and have not been doing. Again, it's not neutral, folks. It's not neutral. There is down. You can tell. You can tell what people have been taught because when they grow up, the proof's in the pudding. There it is. We see what our culture has been taught here. And this is a thing that you need to understand. When it comes to music, church music, worship music in particular, our songs reflect our view of God. Our songs, in fact, proclaim, announce our view of God. This is the way I see God. Comes out in what we sing. And how we sing. 